All right. This one's been a long time coming. I've been thinking about this. I, I, I'm big on taking notes and scribbling things down, and this has been at the top of my list for a long time, and I just had this discussion off the record here that I really want this podcast, as much as I want to tell racer stories and laugh and chuckle and reminisce, I also want to provide genuine value, like a, a, things that maybe a racer, a track owner, a promoter, somewhere out there in the, the motorsports industry could listen to and maybe apply to their life. And it's something that's made a huge difference in my life personally, working with a, a performance coach. And I'm excited to bring Jason Dukes, a New Jersey-based performance coach who has actually a, a long, rich history in motorsports on the show today to talk about all sorts of different things. I actually have I have more notes scribbled down, so <laughs> brace yourself for this one, uh, Jason. I have more notes scribbled down for this one than any I've had. I've, I've talked to crew chiefs. I've talked to uh, racers, uh, historic racers, legendary racers, but I have more notes specifically for this conversation than any of them because I just really think that whenever I roll out to the racetrack, and I'm not saying that I go to the racetrack and I see a bunch of crazy people, but I do see a lot of people that are fighting battles, right? We all are out here in the world, and it just, you know, whether it's a guy that's quote-unquote got my number or somebody that's in a slump and all these different things or I can never have what that guy has or whatever, I hear these things so frequently at the racetrack, and I just thought, you know what, man? I'm going to get Jason Dukes on the show. We're going to dive into all these topics, man. And uh, anyways, welcome, man. How, how goes it? Man, uh, great and great and great. I mean, life is great. Working with you is great. Things you're working on is great. Um, and, and having an opportunity to have this conversation uh, for a lot of people are great. Like you said, I have a, I have a pretty big background in motorsports, which actually helped me, uh, helped me in my life and Actually, I mean, if you, we can go, we can go pretty deep into my life too, and how motorsports was a part of it, and how you know, eventually, life coaching, performance coaching, um, you know, was was a big piece of it, even for me to to get out of my own way and, and you know, build the the current life that I have. So, yeah, I'm excited about this. Uh, and then I guess some of the other things I, I hear you say, like bringing bringing value to the people, like you know, um, anybody listening to this, you know. Please send West messages of how much value he already provides <laughs> <laughs> to you guys on on a uh, you know on, on a lot of different things because yeah I'm a, I'm a huge fan of you huge fan of all the the, the work that you do and, and happy that I you know get to be a part of that in a big way. Well, I'm very happy about it too, and I appreciate it a lot. And I have to say that it's when I think about how long ago it has been, how many moons ago that it was that we met. But I do, I think this is a fantastic little setup because for the first question that I want to ask is when our paths first crossed, I believe it was actually actually at a trade show in Illinois, we bumped into each other and it resulted in a meeting while you were operating, you were like the operations manager, right? At Gateway Motorsports Park, Gateway uh, International Raceway at the time, right? Or what was it at the time? Uh, at the time... Yeah, JR, Gateway International Raceway. Yeah, so you were the like the main guy at Gateway International Raceway. Our paths crossed. I was a young, rambunctious. Uh, the word, the phrase I heard the most frequent uh, frequently was "bull in a china closet" uh, <laughs> of a of a race promoter and a track operator. I was operating a little racetrack in southeastern Iowa. We were having some success. We were making some waves in the Midwest, and somehow which is, this is a flattering thing or a humbling thing to think about. I somehow caught your attention. And the next thing I know, 
I'm going to St. Louis to meet you at Gateway to talk about working at the racetrack. And you were doing all sorts of stuff managing this facility. You went on to, to work in NASCAR for a good while. I mean, holy cow. Yeah. What's that been over 15 years ago? Yeah, yeah. Well, and um, I guess just to, to, to put some things in timeline, like I'd, I'd worked for NASCAR prior to, to going to Gateway. Uh, was it worked in series operations for NASCAR? So I guess most people listening probably resonate with the word like the hat guy, like in victory lane. Like I did that um, from 2001 until about 2004 or five. Um, and then at that point I uh, came over to gateway and was working at gateway. Um, the interesting thing about the story for me is that even for me and my, and my motorsports journey, like I spent, I mean, I'm so, I mean, it's a podcast. You can't see what I look like, but I'm an African-American kid from, you know, New Jersey who literally, it's great. I got to work with Brett Hefner and, and at Gateway, but, you know, grew up watching ESPN, TNN, uh, you know, wherever I could find racing on TV and just got caught into the storyline. So, you know, the NASCAR storylines, the IndyCar storylines, the NHRA storylines, monster truck storylines powerboat racing, whatever you could find, you know, Miss Budweiser. Like I was all about watching all that stuff um, as a kid, but also from watching all that stuff, like I created a, an image of like what working in motorsports was going to be or what I, what I would have to do to work in motorsports or who I would have to be. And the, the crazy thing about it is like the, I mean, I've, I've always been a performance coach or life coach and really just didn't even know it because like the way that you're explaining it, like, Oh, like, you know, like these star crossed eyes and I saw you and, you know, like, why did, why was he looking for me and all that stuff? And it's like, well, because without even knowing, like I was always a performance coach. Like I was always looking for people who like, man, like I could help this guy get some direction and like help them go on and be the next big thing. And without even knowing it, like that's one of those things that was probably happening in my head, like didn't, didn't even realize it. Like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that and that's what my body is genuinely and authentically doing. But yet I'm probably, you know, in the background going through the motions, trying to be the best track manager, uh, you know, ever that can be. So, um, you know, for a lot of people who are looking for their passion or their purpose or what it is they really should be doing, like it's chances are you're probably doing it all the time um, already. I, I tell this story a lot that when I worked for NASCAR, some of the feedback that I used to get there was that, you know, some of the milestones that I had as a, as a business operator, like I wouldn't hit those, but they really could never get rid of me because all the people who ever worked for me went on to be superstars. <laughs> That's interesting, like, man. I mean, cause yeah. it's, well, I mean, and honestly, I look back on that, that meeting at gateway and that was a really wild time for me. I mean, I remember it very well, just how proud I was in that moment to be, I think I was 21 or had just turned 22 and I was being courted to operate a national event. I mean, it was like the drag racing manager, the drag strip manager position. And I couldn't believe that this was even happening. I mean, this is a this is a national event facility. And I'll tell you, it's funny what you're saying really holds true in our relationship because I that is a kind of a landmark conversation in my life because that was when I really, really decided that running a racetrack wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I mean, it, and, and I know that... I mean, I think some people are going, oh, it didn't work out. That's kind of a sad end to the story. But I think that's actually the happy end of the story is that I got a real hard look at what this was going to take, what it was going to look like, the pros and cons or whatever you want to say. And 
you know, it, it forced me to kind of reevaluate like, okay, this is a commitment here. This is a move away from home. This is a, you know, a real departure from, and I don't know that I even had a path, you know, there wasn't any, like, I certainly didn't have anything plotted out, but I looked at that and, you know, I, I turned that offer down and walked away and, and, it was, uh, it's interesting to think back now because you played a role in sending me and maybe that the universe and you and me, whatever, something happened that day because I look back on everything that's happened since then. Drag Illustrated, the World Series of Pro Mod, all these fun things that we're doing. It's like I, none of them likely would have, would have existed had I said yes that day. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, and the interesting thing, too, about it that, that I, I want people to know is that, I mean, even in that situation, like, you know, being the, the drag manager at, at Gateway Raceway or really doing anything in Gateway Raceway that time is like, it's not that the, the possible, like the, that running a track is a bad thing or whatever. But um, when you look at possibilities, like there's so many different factors that go into things that I don't think people realize. And, and I wish, I mean, in hindsight, like looking back, like, I wish I knew what I was getting. I don't regret any of it. Like I love being at Gateway. I obviously love all the people there. It was some of the best times um, of my life. But I don't think what I realized getting in, like when I left NASCAR and went to Gateway, was you know going to run a going to run a racetrack. Yes, that's a national level track that has national events um, and also has like a super healthy local racing facility but is a publicly traded corporation. Yeah, it was a huge eye-opener for me because, like, I, my experience at the racetrack in Iowa was, I mean, we basically made decisions, like, in 30 minutes, you know, or, or 30 <laughs> right. seconds sometimes, you know? And I remember talking to you and, and some of the other people there that were there as part of the team, and I'm going, okay, I'm not really going to, I'm not, I mean, there's no, there's no if, ands, or buts about it. I would be going to work for Dover Motorsports, a right, publicly a traded company, this massive corporation that owns multiple tracks. And I started to learn the nuances of the business and I'm going, yeah, I don't know that this is for me. <laughs> like, I don't really know. I didn't even, some of the things that were discussed that day, I, I didn't even know what they meant. I really didn't. And Anyways, I'm I'm very thankful though that our paths crossed later in life. Uh, a few years ago, and I'm going to fast forward like over a decade, that I'm at uh, the you know now kind of soon to be forgotten or how do you say like the the recently closed down Old Bridge Township Raceway Park in Englishtown, New Jersey, which without a doubt is one of my favorite racetracks to go to. I'll never forget this man sitting on the back of a golf cart end of the day. Long day at the racetrack. It had been, it was a pretty warm day, but a beautiful day at a legendary racetrack. Great day of racing. I'm sitting on the back of a golf cart, just hanging out, kind of letting the day end, which is one of my favorite things to do at the drag strip. Like as much as I love seeing burnouts and record setting passes and side-by-side -side competition, I love to be amongst my people, be in socialize and see faces and, and tell stories and whatnot. And I'm sitting there on the back of this golf cart and here comes this, uh, this how tall are you you're tall you're i'm like six foot tall yeah yeah, yeah. you're six foot tall black guy bebopping down the deal eating a <laughs> waffle cone with like three scoops of ice cream in it Doesn't smiling ear to ear right just <laughs> happy as a clam flip-flop shorts and a polo shirt having the time of his life walking through the pits and i go i thought to myself is that jason dukes <laughs> and i looked at you again and you looked at me and it's like 
what the and it was the weirdest chance meeting because you think about how many people are there how far i am away from home how far i am away from kirksville missouri and here you come and we ended up talking for hours i mean catching up reminiscing all these different things telling stories kind of checking in on one another and it led to like several days of long conversations because I discover that you're like this performance life business coach working with all these high-end real estate guys in the city in New York and and and, and people in motorsports and people from all different walks of life. I remember you telling me that you work with visionaries and I thought, well, I'm going to work with this guy because I want to be called a visionary. I want him to tell somebody that I'm a visionary. And, you know, it means, you know, my ego goes, oh, I want to be called a visionary. I want to work with you know, I want to work with Dukes. And so anyways, I mean, kind of fast forward here and get us to like a question where I can give you the floor a little bit and quit rambling. Uh, it sparked well, a long-term I, I, relationship, right? Yeah. Well, and, and I'll tell you what, too. Um, I mean, just to open up a little bit about me, too, over like fast forwarding, fast forwarding a decade. It's weird that I wish I could have fast forwarded that decade. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have I wouldn't have be, I wouldn't be where I am. I mean, just to, to like talk real life stuff, like, like that was the, the, the decade that you just fast forwarded was, was a show for me. Um, you know, and, and I want to share this just being, being a human, like, I don't want to get on here and be fake at all, but, um, you know, my last year at gateway, the last year I was there. So it was probably a year before the, the, the original gateway closed out or the, right. What, what's the original gateway to me closed down. Um, but my dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So, um, I moved back home to New Jersey, like right before we did the, the pinks all out show. And, um, yeah, so moving back home, I was probably 26, 27 at that point, like maybe a little bit older. The only professional work experience that I had was in motorsports working for NASCAR, uh, and at, at gateway raceway, you know, like I was a hat guy at NASCAR and the drag manager at gateway two extremely transferable uh, <laughs> skills <laughs> to, to, you know, New Jersey, right? Yeah, you put those right on City. the top of your resume. Yeah, but I'll definitely get a job in yes. New York City with those. Uh, that's what everyone's looking for. Um, so, I mean, I, honestly, I came back home and, and struggled uh, for a bit, but, like, not just, not just, like, financially struggle or struggling trying to find a job, but, you know, those are two really big highs to come off of, like, working for NASCAR, traveling around on private airplanes with, you know, Mike Hilton and, you know, like getting to the tracks on Thursdays and just like, you know, having personal conversations with Tony Stewart and Michael Waltrip and Dale Jr. and all those guys. And, you know, like that was just my week to week sort of thing. And then going to Gateway where, you know, it wasn't that, that, uh, you know, that, that intensity when it came to like famous people and stuff like that, but it was still like, I was, my days were walking around a racetrack. Like it was, you know, it was, it was good stuff to come back home to having, you know, my dad dying and all that stuff, uh, up in the air. Like I did a whole bunch of different odd jobs and, you know, kind of building, building my life back up to, you know, finally like really getting authentic and genuine and, and becoming, uh, you know, becoming a performance coach that I did. But, um, one of the, one of the things, the interesting thing about meeting up at, at English town, is when you get out of like motorsports is one of those weird things where you start telling yourself some weird stories. Like I think when you're in motorsports, like if you were in motorsports and people loved you, like they don't stop loving you ever, (laughs) but like you just, you forget that. And so 
I remember going to English Town the year before we met, and um, and I was telling you, I think I told you the story where I I text I text you or I sent you like a Facebook message, um, and I'm sure you were like busy and you didn't get back to me. Like, uh oh, this is gonna open up a can of can of worms for me, Jason. Me, uh oh, uh oh, I I didn't get back to you. (laughs) I held uh, no, but I I held that for like a a year because it was just like, oh my god, like. You know, no one remembers like me. no one. Yeah, no one remembers me. No one loves me, even though, you know, I walk around the pits and Leah Vaughn, you know, who was working at Schumacher at the time, like used to be one of our interns and, you know, thanks me profu- prof- profusely whenever we see each other. Like, you know, I'm so well, yeah, think her. about like, that because she's like really doing big shit. Like she's doing big. Dude, I mean, she yeah. works daily with Dale Earnhardt Jr. <laughs> I know. You know, she's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like even that show, like I know all like Mike Davis, uh, Matt Dillner. You know, Leah Vaughn, Dale Jr., like I've all worked with all those people in the past. And it's funny, you think that, you know, you, you wake up and you're like, oh, none of those guys remember me. And then I think it was that before I done in Charlotte. I saw Mike Davis and it was just like, dude, like, where you been? <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So racing is one of those places where once you're there and you're loved, like you just always love. But it's we all you, suffer that, though. you know, I mean, I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, and this is I don't want to derail where I'm headed here because I do yeah. I promise, ladies and gentlemen, I do have a, a plan, somewhat of a plan, <laughs> or at least I have some stuff jotted down. But you're right, man, because I, I that's something that I struggle with. And I mean, just to, in the sake of transparency, you know, for the sake of transparency, you know, I'm not going to the NHRA national event this weekend in Bristol, Tennessee, and it's an event that I, I really like. It's a track. It's a part of the country that's beautiful. The the facility itself is picturesque. And, you know, it's one of those ones that you kind of look forward to going to. But there, we're in the midst of like a three-race swing here. And it's Father's Day weekend. And to be honest, I just want to stay home. I, I can't say that there's not a party. I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to go. But I want to mm-hmm. stay home more. And I mean, I'm a guy, I go to the races all the time, but I suffer that same situation, Jason. I, I will I will have myself, and this is, it's embarrassing to say, but it's true. I'll have myself worked into a tizzy that I've completely fallen out of favor with everyone because I wasn't everyone. at the racetrack on Saturday and Sunday, and I will wake up Monday morning feeling like I've got to start over. Like, oh, got to rebuild the, the deal, you know, or rebuild my yeah. rep or whatever. I better you know, go test a pro mod car somewhere on Tuesday to get my street cred back. I missed a race, but it's, you know, but I'll go to Norwalk in two weeks, the next weekend, and it'll be, we'll pick up right where we left off. You know, that's a story I tell myself. The funny thing is, is yeah, everyone else will pick off right where you left off, but like your head will do crazy things. Like your head will have you standing on the other side of the rope like waiting for someone to invite you in. Yeah, like, yep. You I've know, done that exact thing, man. Or I'll be an all apologetic. When yes. Conversations oh, man. Sorry. I missed like, you guys last weekend. <laughs> oh man. Such a bummer. Or I will, I mean, this is even worse where you'll like, you'll try to create some like, well, I didn't come last weekend, you know, cause my wife was mad or what, which is all bullshit. I mean, I just, right. I didn't come because I didn't want to, you know, yeah. but I wanted to stay home. I'm tired. I've been on the road a lot. I want to stay home right. this weekend, but I will come up with, and we're all capable of doing that, man, but it, it is nice. And I talk about this all the time that this, the motorsports community, and I obviously don't have near the experience that you do outside of drag racing. I've been in and around drag racing exclusively, but I say it all the time. It's an incredible community of people. And once you're in, you're kind of in. Yeah, I mean it's it's a group of it's a group of people that that like really actually truly do love each other. I know we tell all these stories that we we don't love each other and we're rivals and all that stuff, or that you know, so and so screwing this person and this person's holding this person down and 
you know, this oh, group yeah. of racers against this group of racers. But it's like, yeah, and then watch somebody's car break down and see how, how many people show up in the pit to help. <laughs> oh, dude, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it, like, it's it's amazing, man. And I, I see that so frequently. I uh, The thing that I love, and there's like two little stories, is there. I've my favorite thing to see are the guys that are kind of like well-to-do financially or whatever, and they, they kind of earn this rep as being like, uh, you know, too good to get their hands dirty or whatever. And, you know, somebody's car doesn't start behind the water box. That guy wearing Gucci shoes has a Zeus tool in his pocket, you know, and he's laying on the ground, try, diving under the car. All these people, uh, black, white, purple, brown, yellow, young, old, female, male, you know what I mean? Everybody's diving onto this car to try to get it to run. Like in that moment, we are all brothers and sisters in arms and it's a magical thing. I remember being at Maryland two weeks ago with my dad at the PDRA national event. And this maybe doesn't, isn't a huge surprise to anybody, but considering all the racial tension and considering all the tension that just kind of exists in America right now, whether it's with, you know, different races or different religions or different, um, what do you call it? Like lesbian, gay, bi, whatever it was. There was this moment where I was walking through the pits and they started playing the national anthem. And I'm telling you, People stopped, people took their hats off, and I looked around in this moment, and I saw people young, old, I saw, uh, uh, you know, black, brown, purple, yellow, everybody, you know what I mean? All these different people, rich people, poor people, guys wearing overhauls, guys wearing, you know, clearly part of a paid operation, wearing a sublimated crew jersey and black slacks and shiny shoes, everyone stopped and did the same thing. And it's those mm -hmm. moments, you know, that I just really am proud to be a part of this community. So I guess to kind of, you know, loop back around to what we're talking about it is amazing this is a really really unique in my opinion group of people and it's no surprise to me that when you show up to the racetrack i've gotten to we've drug you out a couple of times here recently you came to the world series of promar the last couple of years you came to the four yeah. wides earlier this year it's no surprise to me that everybody you know is quick to say hey jason good to see you no it's yeah and it's amazing because yeah my, my head is the only person that's surprised by it you know, my head and the stories that I end up telling, telling myself. And I guess one of the reasons, and we're, we're probably having a conversation that a lot of people uh, aren't attuned to, but, you know, one of the jobs of a performance coach is just to help you to see all of those different stories that you have going on in your head that end up, you know, affecting your business and affecting your performance and affecting your life in a bunch of different ways. And so uh, I guess just to kind of tune everybody in, like, that's why we're both talking about some of the you know, the, the whacked out stories that we have and some of the crazy things that it, it does to us. Because, yeah, I mean, just in the story that we're talking about, the story of leaving probably has has lots of people listening, like staying at the job that they are at, that they really would rather go do something different or, um, you know, showing up at the racetrack this week where they really need to be with their family or not doing whatever or just just overdoing some stuff that they don't even need to be doing or, um, you know, the, the earlier part of, you know, me from the second I saw you, like wanting to be your performance coach when you were 21 and not even know what performance coaching was, but it was just something that was just natural to me that like, you know, and then all of your stories of like, why would this dude even care who I am? And it's like, you know, I didn't even get it. I didn't even know what was, what was building up in me at that point. But you know, here it is all realized 15 years later. It's amazing, man. Speaking of like, I'm curious one of the most kind of thankless jobs is that of the track operator and the race promoter. I mean, there are moments, uh, you know, in the rare, and I won't, won't don't want to say rare, but in the, you know, the moments that are somewhat, sometimes few and far between when you're counting money, 
right? Mm-hmm. And and divvying up profits or whatever. Those are rewarding jobs, but they are also can be very thankless jobs. I'm curious with the the looking back on your motor your time at the drag strip and specifically i mean there's so many race promoters uh, up and coming race promoters so many people trying to become promoters there are, there's i don't know how many racetracks are in operation right now i think the number's over 350 around the world i mean when you look back on your time as a track operator working with you know or you know dealing with racers on a daily basis or every weekend when you look on that back on that through the lens of a performance coach, I mean, what are some things that pop out to you? What are some things that maybe you, the, the, the battles you were fighting as a track operator, what were the stories you were telling yourself back then? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> two separate questions. What was I telling myself back then versus what I would tell myself now? Yeah. Um, well, well, they're, they're different, though. I mean, what I would tell myself now is learn learn all of my personal stories and, and like really get a high level elevated story of what's happening at the track and then do your job of managing people. Like actually do your job of like, you know, it's, it's your job to be the, the bigger person. Like unfortunately track manager's job is to be the bigger person on everything. Cause if you're not the bigger person on everything, then the end result is the track closes and then no one has a place to play. Right. So, you know, your job is to, be the bigger person so that even whatever, like even if it's an ego blow and it looks like you're losing that you're still winning enough, at least to keep the thing going so that everybody still has a place to have this thing going. Um, you know, so I would, my advice to track people now or, or even event organizers or the whole industry right now is get elevation, like, you know, work with a performance coach or someone who will help you get elevation on the situation. Like, where you can see like, you know, just the, the fights that are there that are really just historical fights. Like, you know, does Chevy and Dodge, do they really hate each other? Like does Ford and Chevy really hate each other? Or is it just, you know, it's for the show, but it's like, you know, in in reality, they need to be working together. Like, you know, does the, you know, do the, the foot brake guys really hate the track manager more than the super pro guys. And, you know, is the, is the track manager really, you know, bigger fan of the motorcycle or the test and tune crowd or like, you know, does the track manager really prefer drifting over drag racing, all this (laughs) other stuff. Like, it's like, look, there's all just sort of made up storylines that if you don't get elevation on, you actually get into them. And, uh, and as a track manager, once you're into those storylines, like you're lost because then you just become, you become a fighter. And I mean, if, like that's one of the places where like me looking back at my, my life as a track operator, like that's where I failed. I went in and just kind of, you know, there was a storyline of, of who and what the track operator of a, that track should be. And I went and did that. So it was like, so what was my daily life? Like, you know, MF in the racers and MF in this and MF in that. And, you know, and then like, <laughs> cutting stuff but like i mean honestly genuinely cutting stuff because it needed to be cut but then like cutting it from like a villain place and not talking to people and you know when people had good ideas thinking that they were bad because of who was coming from and when it was coming from and like you just you get caught up in this whole story of the thing and it's like dude no it's your job to be the bigger person you know see all the storylines see all the stories that all the people have in some cases coach people through it like let people know like hey look like we really actually just need to work together. And you may actually have to say that a hundred times to them and not lose your cool. 
and just be like, look, we got to work together, you know? And they're like, yeah, but you're just trying to F up. Like, look, we have to work together. Yeah. No, yeah, I get we're it. We're just trying to, you know, help us. Um, you know, one of the other things that I, that hurt me as a, as a track operator, uh, at gateway was that the, the racers there really did think that the place was never going to close. <laughs> like it'd be much easier to go back there and be the track operator now because like, people know that there's actually a consequence like here, if the track doesn't make money, this thing's actually going to close. Um, that was one of those weird things that didn't really exist when I was there. It was like, no, like, like, you know, this thing is not really working and it doesn't, you know, they're going to, yeah. And they're going to close it down. And people are like, yeah, no, they've been saying that for the past 20 years. And it's like, well, you're right. There was no comeback to that. <laughs> so, like when the track actually did close, I think most people were shocked, even though like everybody who was working at the track was telling them. Yeah. You I mean, know? I heard no, it no. for years, man. I mean, cause you got to think <laughs> that's a couple hundred miles away from the house here. So that's yeah. one of our quote unquote local tracks. And I heard it for years. And I think that it was funny because I kind of fell into that category of people that were like shocked and uh, dismayed <laughs> whenever, you know what I mean? Like gateways closing down. What are you serious? Right. You know? And it was like, literally, it literally felt like they just flipped a switch like up oh, tracks closed later. And I, I remember that moment going, how did that happen? And I'm, then I remember kind of getting perspective on it going, well, shit, they've been That's saying it. They, they said it's going to happen. <laughs> and I mean, I just, you know, I guess they meant it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't it wasn't a ploy, but that's the weird thing is that I, and honestly, build trust. Like, really, I mean, and being the bigger person and and making sure that everyone works together, like that only happens from a place of trust. Like the problem, the the gateway that I walked into, like there was just so much distrust between everyone, so it was hard to actually have. It was hard to have a real conversation with people because no matter what came out of my mouth. People just thought like they, they'd heard it before. They just thought I was lying. They thought I used it as a negotiation thing. They thought I was using it to make my job easier or whatever, whatever. Or, you know, using it because I because me personally want to do a different event rather than their event. And it's like not like Cleet, like there was just there was no trust. Like there just has to be trust. That's in, this is a good segue. I have to I want to say two things here. And the first one is that. I just as a little admission on my end here is that I think one of the first kind of skills that I developed as I started working with a coach was with working with you was to develop that perspective. And it was something that, you know, and I'd heard people say this to me, but sometimes you have to hear things a lot, right? I mean, it has to be hammered in, especially the hard headed entrepreneurial types. You know, it takes a long time sometimes for something to set in. And it's funny because Tomorrow I could hear something once like in a book <laughs> or on a YouTube video and I will live and die by it for the rest of my life. But sometimes the messages I really need to hear, I can't hear. And mm -hmm. I've had multiple people in my life throughout the course of, you know, the last 15 years of being in business for myself tell me that you, you can't work in your business, Wes. You have to work on your business, Wes. And it was, you know, I, I couldn't kind of tackle some of the issues that we were facing that were more long-term or, or I couldn't embrace some of the opportunities that we had when I was spending my days and nights writing captions, you know, and, mm -hmm. and checking punctuation and whatnot. And I, I loved doing that. And I, my ego drove, drove that bus a lot because I wanted my yeah. hands on everything. But I think one of the first things, and I don't know if I'm not necessarily trying to give everybody a bullet list here of things that I think they should be paying attention to, but one of the, the, the first skills I think I earned 
was the ability to gain some perspective and take that 30,000 foot view. There have been several times in the last two years that I caught myself, and I'm gonna sound like a Fruit Loop here, but I literally caught myself kind of looking at a situation and being able to fairly clearly see a, a variety of different outcomes and a variety of different pathways. Like, okay, I, this is the situation we're facing, and I know that I can either go left or right here. And I have experience going left. I know exactly what happens when I go left. So what if I try going right? You know, and it was just, and there's been a lot of those situations. And I think that, you know, it's like, try to look at these situations that are unfolding on the racetrack sometimes or in the pits or whatever in your business, like you're standing on top of the tower and you can see all the different exits of the racetrack or where all the different little pathways lead. And, you know, take them, take a minute one or five or 50 or five days or whatever it takes to kind of at least think about the different outcomes. And that was, and I, I was never, I never really gave myself the opportunity because I would to do that. Cause I was always so busy, you know, doing busy work, work that had to be done. Right. Yeah, but I would, yeah. I, I found well, that's a safe well, place. Right. Yeah. Well, when, when you talk about, you know, sounding fruit loops, like well, I mean, one of the first things that happened, especially in motorsports with my motorsports client and in real estate too, but with my motorsports clients, when we get elevation on situations, like they start to realize just how, how fruit loops are racing reality is sometimes. Right. Because yeah, I mean, even for me, like I grew up, one of the most upsetting things about working for NASCAR was that Richard Petty was just a dude. And like Tony Stewart was like a guy and you know, Kyle Petty was like a guy and Dale Jr. was like the guy who would actually like quiet and, you know, Terry Labonte cursed at me and like, right. They're just, know, they're just like, people. What? Yeah. They were just people. But I grew up with these people being like, I, you know, like, yeah. Icons and, you yeah, know, like I worked man. so, I worked so hard to get my dad to like bring me to, the the racetrack and you know like convince his friends to bring me to the racetrack and so so you know my first couple times at a racetrack like i was a thousand miles from all these guys and you know now all of a sudden i get a job and i'm like standing right next to them and it's like dude you like you better glow in the dark or something and, and, and they don't it's just they're just normal people uh you know and i grew up with all these stories of watching the stories of who arrivals and all this stuff and then you know you go have dinner with both of them and you're like are you guys no? You're not going to fist nothing. fight or anything. <laughs> you know, Do you no, need me to get happen. a helmet out for you to hit each other with, or what, what, <laughs> right. what happens? Yeah, what's what's going to happen here? And like nothing happens. So, you know, or and and that was me coming into racing as a fan. But you know, if you if you grew up in racing as a, a racer, like you go there and you know you you have like these great visions of how terrible the track manager is and how bad the track surface is, even though you actually never touched it or know anything about track surfaces, like, you know, and you just build up, you know, which sanctioning bodies screw in you and all this stuff. And, you know, how terrible the manufacturers and the parts people are. And then you actually go in from a business standpoint, create a business in this industry. You create a business in this industry with all of those crazy whacked out root loop stories. Like you've created all of your limitations it's like so you true. You talked man. about it. You talked about a track with all these exits. Like our whacked out stories, our Fruit Loop stories. Actually, like none of those exits are 
available because we've created a story that like at the southeast exit is a dragon and right. at the northeast exit is a tsunami and at the you know northwest exit is a you know a, a spear guillotine and you basically lock yourself in and just doing the thing that you've been doing all the time when it's like none of those actual whacked out fruit loop things actually exist but we've been telling ourselves that story over and over and over again that if we go go towards that exit you know, this is what's going to happen based on some story that who knows how the story started. Well, and, and but, it's, it's probably not true. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's not true. And I think that oh, that's used, yeah, man. I mean, oh, it's I, I'm sorry. I was just going to say I used to like I mean, I love kids. I ended up being one of the things I ended up doing was being a teacher. Like I'm a life coach and a performance coach. Like I love kids. And I remember our junior dragster program. And uh, at Gateway, like, you know, I used to get, ex- I mean, most of the races, some of the races were over the top and I'd be like, all right, I just want to go home. But most of the races, like, it's like this kid just won a great thing. And it's like me presenting a trophy to the kid and all that stuff. And it's like, wait, what's wrong with this kid? And it's like, 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 wait, this kid hates me. Like, hates me. And it's like, what has, what, what would have a nine-year-old kid, like, hating a person, giving them the trophy who organized the event they just ran. Yeah. And it's like, at the age of nine, this kid already hates the track manager. <laughs> what did I do? Oh, that's that's a pre-programmed relationship. And we can talk yeah. about that, because that's one of the things that I think... I, I, I this, I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit, but this yeah. is something that you and I talked about recently that I think is really interesting. And I think we've kind of set the stage for it. And this is something that I've suffered you know, through or whatever and kind of have dealt with it. There's this, I'm always, and I think that we, we find unique ways to get motivated, right? And one of the ways that I have motivated myself um, for a long time is it's this me versus the world thing and, and us yeah. versus them, right? And they're doing it wrong and I'm going to do it right. And right. I've, I've done this. And I think in some instances, maybe it served me well, but I think as we arrive here, you know, here in 2019, and there are a lot of storylines that exist. I mean, if you pull up any news app right now and like click the motorsports tab, you're going to read about sponsors going away, events, poor attendance. I mean, it's kind of an interesting time. And I, and I, and I don't want to, you know, some of those things I'm, I'm telling myself right now, like, well, hey, let's not give credence to these negative storylines. But it is something that exists right now. And I'm just curious that how much to blame is this us versus them mentality? Because there was a huge story that came out a few weeks ago in drag racing that I don't want to say took to, ta- well, kind of took to task the NHRA for, you know, whatever shortcomings this may exist with the program, right? Or whatever, not, not growing or whatever. And I remember you and I talking about it later and you kind of identifying going, Hey man, you got to be careful. Cause this is like, you could dive straight into the me versus the NHRA and I'm going to show them and you know, this whole thing. But you actually said to me like, well, wh- what's any different? I mean, isn't this probably like the 6,000th time somebody has said that like there aren't any new sponsors or why don't we have an official beer or whatever? What, what are we going to do different? And what do you, so what do you make of this kind of us versus them? Because I'm sure that storyline exists in NASCAR too. The team, the team owners oh, versus yeah. NASCAR and the fans versus NASCAR. And in, in drag racing, it's the fans versus it's outlaw racers versus the NHRA. It's, yeah. I mean, everybody versus the NHRA kind of. Yeah, well, it's it's the people want to do the thing that's comfortable rather than the thing that's going to make the difference. 
and it's not that people are malicious, like, because we all, I look, if, if I'm going to say that people are malicious for doing that, then I would have to go bury myself because I've done it all throughout my life. But we're, we're just so, I mean, once again, we don't stop to get elevation. And two, we try to solve problems the comfortable way that we know how to solve problems. Like, when I look at the industry, one, I don't think the industry is as fire-ridden as everyone says it is. Like, the work that you're doing, the work that a lot of different people are doing um, is making a big difference. Like, you know, some of the people, like, people will show me pictures of, like, you know, a NASCAR race from when I worked there. And they're like, see, do you see the difference between this this and and now? And I'm like, yeah, Kodak doesn't exist anymore. And you know, IBM doesn't sell that. And, you know, these cigarette companies have been outlawed. And, you know, well, the beer companies, there's this big craft beer revolution. And so it's like, no, I actually do see a difference. Like, things have evolved. But just because Kodak doesn't sponsor a race car doesn't mean that, you know, that racing is terrible. It means that Kodak went out of business. And, you know, some of these things actually just, some of these things have you evolved like i just i just saw and i'm, I'm gonna get back to it but i read an article yesterday where nationwide is leaving hendrix motorsports and nascar and they're like look it's not that you guys did a bad job our business has just changed like our actual business has changed um so but to, to get back to the the question that yes about the the us first them and the people doing the thing that's comfortable rather than the thing that would work was in a situation like this the thing that would actually work is the um the, the the industry as a whole just getting together, right? Because one of the things when people write letters like this, like it just, it actually does what the problem has already done. Like the problem is that, you know, the NHRA is all in some fort somewhere huddled up trying to protect themselves against all the people lobbing tomatoes and pistons oh, yeah. and things like that against them. And so like this, like everything in the article was was correct and right. But it's like what's like everyone wants the NHRA's reaction to be like, okay, well, good, we're gonna go solve this problem now. But the reality is that like when when you're in a fort and someone's lobbing tomatoes and pistons and tires at you, like what do you do? Yeah, like, you hunker down and throw <laughs> you throw, throw shit back. <laughs> you throw shit back, or you like build a bigger fort. Yeah, but how does that help? It doesn't. Know? It doesn't. I you mean, know, and it's so tough. I mean, because and this is interesting because I never thought about this till this just this minute. And not like this. I have in the past, it, whenever I put on my publisher hat, and as you know, I wear a lot of hats, mm-hmm. right? But when yeah. I put on my I, magazine publisher quasi-journalist hat, right, that, that fits okay, a little tight for me, right? <laughs> um, I, when I put that hat on, I have taken heat in the past, you know, for not like grilling the NHRA or not always taking people to task, right? Mm-hmm. And... In the handful of times that we've done it, um, I got to be honest, man, I didn't like the way it felt. I didn't like what happened. You know what I mean? I didn't. And I do think that the press or whatever, there are some responsibilities like to keep everybody honest or to hold people accountable. And I understand all that. I really do. But I agree wholeheartedly with and I don't want to you know, I'm not uh, um, I'm not villain vilifying or whatever the word would be um, the, the, the writers of these stories over the years. I'm really not. But I do, as we move forward, not to sound like a politician or whatever, but man, what, how do we change this? How do we make it better? And I certainly don't think, you know, spilling ink endlessly and burning up magazine pages and, and website articles with just telling the same story 
over and over and over again and furthering that divide. Because that's what I see if I look at the NHRA, and I know we were going to try to have some high-level stuff, and I think this is high-level, but if I look mm-hmm. literally at the NHRA right now, Jason, what I see is the widest, the, the greatest gap that I've ever experienced. I've gone to nearly every NHRA national event in 2019, and I don't know why. I don't know if it's just been a God, universal thing, but I felt like I needed to develop some clarity on... I wanted to see it a little bit more than I see it typically. And I typically go to like half as many races as I've been to so far this year. And it's been interesting because I've really gotten a, a first hand accounting or a first person um, view of this massive gap that exists between the racers, team owners, uh, manufacturers, sponsors, and the NHRA. And I very much see it how you do. I see them in a bunker you know, batten down the hatches, so to speak, while people lob tomatoes and blower belts and input shafts or whatever else they can get their <laughs> hands on, you know, and it's, and I'm going, man, wh- what do we got to do to turn the corner here? And I know it sounds silly, but man, it seems like some conversation, some working together, some sitting at a, at a table, some, some sort of effort to communicate some issues, because I don't think that we're a million miles away from the you know, the always elusive next level or the promised land or whatever, you know, word well, phrase you want to throw out there. Yeah. I, and I think, I mean, again, I always joke with you about, um, giving away free consulting to the industry, but more free consulting to the industry is that like, uh, like look, drag racing, I think is closer than any other motorsport right now. Like, you know, all motorsports are, well, all sports are like, you know, fighting a diversity battle. Um, motorsports, uh, motorsports, it, it, drag racing doesn't have that problem at all. Like you always say, it's the great American sport. Like, to, like you know, it's easy to explain. Um, you know, the drag racing reality TV shows are killing it mostly just because it's it's literally easy to explain. Like yeah. some point, some point during this reality TV show, two cars are going to go up against each other and something's going to happen. Like it's so easy to explain, but um, yeah, a lot of it is just, just working together, working together for a common good and, and just understanding that if the pie gets bigger, it gets bigger for, for everybody. Um, you know, it's probably hard for people to like, it's, it's that's, that one is super easy for me to understand because I lived it during my NASCAR years where it was like the pie just got so big that everybody got really big slices Um, where, you know, right now people are fighting for people are fighting to make their slice bigger where it's like, look, if we just made this pie bigger, everybody's slice would be everybody's slice would be bigger. I agree a hundred percent, man. And it's just, it's a really, it's like a fundamental difference of approach. And it's, there's all these things that I feel kind of have to happen where it's like okay how can we like a needs analysis like we need to figure out as racers and team owners and whatever what the nhra needs right what do they need and the nhra needs to find out what these teams need and we need to try to find a way to tick those boxes you know like okay here's what they need they need a shorter show you know they need less oil downs whatever you know we need tickets we need parking spots we need you know, visibility, whatever. I mean, I'm, I know that those answers can, we can arrive at those answers. They're available. Yeah. Well, from a, from a storyline thing, um, not a storyline thing, like a performance coaches stories thing is 
in order to in order to get to that place, like people have to do the hard thing, um, which in most cases is really just in a lot of the work that we've done is like they really do have to give up your their stories. Like, you know, like racers aren't going to be able to have a high level important conversation with the NHRA if they treat the NHRA as the evil empire. Oh yeah, right? like, I knew you were going to say it eventually. That's uh, that's one of we we were joking. Jason and I were joking before the show that you know we we actually we have actually developed like an entire language, basically oh. that that exists between us. But the evil empire is one of those the one of those well, kind of buzzwords in our relationship, right? That well, well, know. yeah, but I mean, it's not just it's it's not just you. I could probably oh, yeah. use that with with most of my racing clients, and they would they would understand it. That um, I mean, most racers relate to the sanctioning body or the track or someone like as an as the evil empire like it's just it's the disneyfication of things where you know there has to be a villain and you make a villain and all that stuff and you know there's responsible ways of doing it but we've just like we were probably responsible in the beginning where it was like all right we'll be the villain and you guys get to be the hero and then everybody you know everybody will go enjoy themselves but like then that actually carried on for 50 years and somehow now the sanctioning body is really the villain yeah, it's it's like we've we've spoke this whole thing into reality, and it's one of the the story. This is just an example, but it, this is like a really recent example. I recently, and this is a, and I'm not saying this is the right idea. I'm just giving an example. I recently suggested that there may be some indications that exist out there that the NHRA has too many national events. You know mm-hmm. that there's there's a lot of races going on, man, and I see you know some of our pro level participation has has, I don't want to use the word dwindled, but it's reduced, you know, and it's noticeable, right? I mean, there's been multiple times where we haven't had full fields in like our premier categories, and it's a problem. In the meanwhile, the NHRA reduced the schedule for the pro stock competitors from 24 races to 18 or whatever. And voila, we have more racers all of a sudden. It was, Mm -hmm. and I, I thought, wow, what a kind of exciting proof of concept. So in recent, uh, really recently, like the last few days, I've kind of floated that idea around just to get people's perspective or whatever. And it was so funny. I immediately started hearing the stories that we all tell ourselves. Oh, <laughs> NHRA, I had a guy tell me, NHRA will never reduce the schedule. They can't turn away that that income. And it's so funny because I met with a track operator over the weekend that told right, me they what, lost what income. What income? They lost <laughs> what, their what ass on their about? national event, right? right? And it's like, hey, man, that story is a roadblock. That story that NHRA wouldn't entertain that, there, I mean, and this is obviously a little bit fairy tale, but there may be a track on the tour that says, hey, give me a year off. Put me in a lottery system. You know, like, let me have a little bit of time between one of these. Maybe we don't need one every year. I don't know. You know, I'm yeah, just saying that it, it, might be, it might be welcomed news. Yeah, for some tracks, it would actually work better. Uh, I mean, it, 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 you know, creates create some of the, um, you know, create some scarcity and it would probably be better for, it'd probably be better for the industry too. Like there's, it's hard for events to compete against. And I mean, a track operator hat, like it's hard for events to compete against a national event. Um, you know, so in places like gateway in St. Louis, we basically had, um, we had the national event and then we had September, like the, like anything close to the national event was too close to the national event. Anything after the national event was too hot. And then there was September and then anything after September was too cold. So it was like, we literally had like that. That's, that was the limitations we had on our schedule. Like the, that national event created just this whole, like 
silo in, in a certain part of our our uh, our schedule where it was like you really couldn't do any other big events near or close to that national event because the national event sucked in so much attention and so much of the so much of everything. Really. I've had firsthand experience with it, man. The World Series of Pro Mod is like three weeks removed from Denver, Colorado's Bandamere Speedway's NHRA national event. And it's been right. something that has weighed on me, man, since day one. I go, man, we are too close to this race. And yeah. we are. You know what I mean? There's nothing we can do about it. And I don't and I don't really belabor it too much because there's nothing we can do about it right now. But it is kind of an interesting thing because I I how does how does a new big event even come about? Right? How does a new yeah. hot thing in drag racing even come about? Because you can't compete with the NHRA. You can't, yeah, you compete, can't, you can't compete with, with 60 years of, of tradition and, I mean, generations of people going out to an event. I mean, you're dealing with family ties and traditions and all these things that no matter how cool your deal is, no matter what rock band you book in or drift program or how much money the purse is or, you know, what Stevie Jackson's going to do, whatever, mm -hmm. it don't matter. Joe Racer fan has been going to the Mile High Nats with his grandpa and dad for 26 years, and they can only afford to go to one race, and right, that's the one right. they're going to go to, no matter right. what, you know. And so it is a very interesting thing, man. And I look at, you know, I was at Richmond in Richmond, Virginia, this past year, and I don't know the exact numbers, but I will tell you that there was the buzz. It looked great. Don't get me wrong. And I don't want you know mm -hmm. anybody saying that I don't think it was a very successful race. It was. It was clearly a very good crowd. But there wasn't quite the buzz that there was last year because it was the first time the NHRA had been there in like a decade, right? right. And there was all this pent-up demand and all this excitement. And, and people were coming out to the drag races for the first time in a long time. You couldn't find a place to park. You were stuck in traffic, all these things. Now, granted, the, the venue learned they kind of got back into the rhythm of putting on a, a big event, so they were more efficient parking cars and more efficient getting people into the place and whatever. But still, I just wonder, hey, man, there's a, I mean, I think there's a case that could be made that less is more. But because all these stories exist and the evil empire would never let go of that money and they've got their, you know, they've got all this money and they're holding down, you know, holding us back or whatever, we're never going to even be able to have that conversation. And maybe it's not the right answer, but golly, I do think it's something that needs to be talked about. Yeah. It's great. I, I took this negotiations class and, and I'm going to get this messed up because it was just going back 20 years now, but I took this negotiations class in college where we had to do the simulation where uh, we had to negotiate. And so like he gave us like five negotiations in a row where like, you know, my goal was to get one and the other person that I was negotiating was to get 10. And, you know, we'd all sit there and then about the fifth negotiation, like we just started at like we'd fight really hard to get to five in, in all the couple first cases. Um, but then in the fifth negotiation, like we just got all smart, right? It was like, well, if you have 10, if I have one, then I assume you have 10. So let's just start at five and like, you know, and make this super quick because this is a college class, right? Is, <laughs> is this making sense? Yeah. All right. So then he gave us like the last one that he gave us, you know, I look at my blind card that the other person can't see and it's 10. So I'm like, well, the other person must have 10. I'm sorry. The other person must have one, right? Right. So, you know, they open up their card, they look and they're like, you know, they have 10. So I must have one. And we literally go straight into the negotiation like, like, all right, well, let's just cut it straight down the middle. And we were both like, okay, cool, five. 
<laughs> we both we agreed on five, and then we looked at each other's cards, and it was like I wanted ten, and he wanted ten, and we agreed on five. It's... And it was just like, wait, like what happened? It was like, well, just because we learned that we were automatically going to be on the opposite side, so just go ahead and let's negotiate down the middle. Yeah, and it's like that—that's some of the things that end up happening in drag racing now, just because of those stories make it impossible for people to, you know, to communicate. And it's like it's a building thing, like for a nine-year-old to not want to shake my hand in victory lane at a junior dragster of it because you're the, the leader of the evil empire. I'm the leader of the evil empire. That's what dad says. Dad says yeah. Jason's a prick. You right? know, like, yeah, like, you know, and it's like, dude, like, how's that going to, how's that going to go 10 years from now when, you know, now we actually have to decide how we're going to go to, you know, go forward as an industry. Like, it's just, it's just not like you're they're you know, they're not going to believe any word coming out of my mouth. And it's going to be hard for me to defend and duck all the, the things in there in my fort. It's and so it interesting. To, it doesn't have to be that way. It's so um, interesting, and it, it does it. There's a couple of things, and we've obviously been going for quite a while here, but if you've got a minute, I'd like to dive into just a couple like bullet yeah. point things. One of the things that I hear you know, racers talk about, and we're, we'll, we'll do a little bit more rapid fire as we kind of wrap this deal up, but I, I do want to talk about some of the things that, <clears throat> that we've worked on that I hear guys that are really high achievers in our sport talk about all the time, like one of the guys that, that I talk to and I think very highly of and I anticipate having on the show here at some point is Frank Hawley. He's a drag racing instructor, a very successful drag racer in his own right, and he has what I believe to be you know the industry-leading drag racing school and training system, and he talks all the time about you know visualization and, and all these different things, and, and it's crazy because I can almost always tell a new driver that has gone through Frank's program because mm -hmm. you, they're just they're elevated slightly. They're advanced. They are they've kind of with his teaching and his coaching, they just they seem to accelerate rapidly, you know, and that's a little bit of a pun because of course they do. They're in a drag car, but they <laughs> but they they seem to just gain experience at light speed, you know, and it's very interesting. And I just wanted to touch on a couple of things that you and I have worked on together is that, you know, the just relaxing a little bit. I think drag racing is full of people that are like blue collar, hardworking types, and we will work for the sake of working, you know? So focusing on relaxation, um, self-talk, right, is a huge mm -hmm. one. I think that's one that I deal with all the time of I'm very bad about um, beating myself up or whatever. And imagery, visualization, goal setting, accountability, concentration, and focused effort and whatnot – one of the things that I wanted to touch on here is the thing that lies that racers tell themselves, right? And this is just kind of yeah. a little funny thing. I hear guys all the time, man, that guy's got my number. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> that guy's just got my number. And when you put your performance coach hat on, which you keep on, uh, what, what, do you, what do you hear in that? What do you hear when somebody says that? Is that somebody just, hey, man, you got to be careful because you'll make that story true. You'll red light against that guy forever. Yeah, well, yeah, man, there's, uh, you know how our conversations go. There's so many things in what I just heard. I heard, like, three different things. One, on the, like, yeah, if you're going to get into drag racing, go to a drag racing school, get a coach, like, build your team, like, like not just your racing team, like, build your mental team to go racing. Uh, the la One of the last things that you said is my performance coach hat, which, and then you said I always wear it. 
the truth is the hardest part about my job is that I have to be responsible about wearing my performance coach hat. Like I have to know when to take it off and when to put it on, which is I think an extremely important lesson in drag racing is that people are comfortable wearing a certain hat and then they just wear it everywhere. Like, you know, like they're <laughs> the CEO at their business and then they show up at the drag strip, which is supposed to be like the fun thing to do. And then they end up being CEO at the drag strip and then probably end up like creating a series or doing something. And it's like, wait, that was the place where you were supposed to go have fun. And now you're like the CEO of the drag racing association or something like that, which is like not what you were supposed to be doing. Oh, dude, um, I can give you 75 examples of that. And it's funny because that's a, that's a fun one. And I preach that. And I'm glad you brought that up because I wouldn't have gotten there without you bringing that up is that, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of that. Um, I know tons of guys that are guilty of that, that we've, that you, you know, we're supposed to go drag racing to have fun. And, and the, the real hard kind of hitting fact is that most people that drag race do it as a hobby, right? It's something that they do for fun. They do with their family. And it is crazy to see how many of those people have completely turned it into a job or turned it into a business. And, but isn't that the fashionable thing to do, right? Everybody wants to treat, you know, you need to treat your race team like a business, right? <laughs> right. I hear that all the time, but I don't know if that's great advice. Well, I mean, it, yeah, it, it, well, not that it's not great advice. It just like, just, it may fit for like, look, no advice fits everything. True. Um, you know, like if you are getting into drag racing as a business, like for you, drag racing is your, well, for you, drag racing is your business and it's also your pleasure. So you do a lot of work and we've worked on it of separating the two, like, you know, like there's certain weekends where you're at the drag strip to business. There's certain weeks where you're at the drag strip to fun. Like that's it. And they have to be separate. Right. Um, you know, there are certain people who are in drag racing and drag racing is their business. So yes, they do need to treat it as a business. There are some people who are like drag racing is their fun thing so that they could do better at business for those people. They probably shouldn't treat their drag racing as business because they don't know how to be responsible when they treat things as business, like if they treat it as business, then it means they're going to become the CEO and the boss of all of them. And it's like, whoa, you just went way too far. This was supposed to be fun. It's so true, man. It's so you know? true. And it's, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because it, it is one of those things that I think it's just what we're comfortable with. I mean, I've kind of caught myself doing it now that I've, you know, created one business after another, after another, after another in the drag racing world. And it's tough because it's made it, increasingly difficult to find those places to make it fun and to remember that I'm having fun and to remember that I love doing this stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a challenge, man. And it, it really, really is. But, uh, sometimes just knowing, like, I think that some of the times that just knowing that this is a story that I'm telling myself or knowing that I'm, I'm falling into an old trap or an old behavior pattern is, I don't know. Sometimes all you just got to do is be aware, right? Well, yeah. I mean, be aware. And I mean, you're, you know, not getting into all the different people that, that you have on your team. Like, like you're not just aware, like you're aware you have the business goals that you have. And then you have a team, you know, both a business team and a personal team set up to help you, you know, get to those goals. And, and that's what, um, you know, awareness is, is just the first part of it because then you also have to have people to hold you, uh, accountable to, to getting there. I mean, I was sharing with you earlier, I, I, I'm a life coach and performance coach. I have a, both a, a life coach who also serves as my performance coach and a, and a therapist. And, um, 
like my coach today, just we had a conversation about stuff that was completely in my blind spot, like just stuff that that I didn't I mean, I didn't see. And we started laughing halfway through it because it was so obvious, but I just couldn't see it. I just couldn't see it. So, you know, but now now I see it. It's there. It's it's obvious. It was something that told me back. But also, you know, she's there to hold me accountable to moving, uh, you know, as a as I move forward and, and making sure. Sorry, making sure that I do something with it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there's 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 a lot uh, there's a lot that, that goes into it. And, and awareness is awareness is one of the biggest pieces of it. And sometimes awareness isn't awareness isn't fun because, I mean, humans would much rather be right. <laughs> that's and, one uh, of the things that. Yeah. And that's the, the that's the thing that I wanted to do, like a practical application thing, because it really is true in the case of that guy has my number, which I've heard a lot, right? I hear that. Mm-hmm. I've heard that a lot over the years. And I've seen it where stories, I mean, I've, I've written stories in Drag Illustrated talking about guys who basically win races when they roll through the gate because oh, yeah. everybody goes, oh, shit, I know that big black trailer. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know that shiny rig. I, I recognize that duly. And they know that so-and-so super badass racer is inside the cab of that truck, and all of us here are screwed. And then all of a sudden you see guys wrecking against them, red lighting, leaving before the trees activated, you know, leaving the, you know, crossing up the plug wires. Like you will find a way to lose to that guy now. Right. Right. Because you're going to make that story true. And then at the end of the event, say that the other guy was cheating. And it's like, wait, he didn't even, he didn't even run good this weekend. You just lost, everybody here just lost to him. And now you're going to say that he was cheating. It was like, no, he won when he came through the gate because of your mindset. And and now you're even gonna go a step further, and and still not even like be honest with yourself about it. Like now you're gonna blame him for cheating. It's like the dude isn't the dude's not cheating. Ran worse than he normally runs, and you lost to him because of your mindset. And you know, and this is supposed to be your fun weekend. So when you, if you were to hear somebody, Jason, say that to you, right? That 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 guy's got my number, or you know, oh they're here. And we're screwed. I mean, what's, I mean, just, I mean, obviously I always like to throw in some practical application things because I think it's good for people just to have some reminders or some steps or some rules that they do. Like if they see that guy in the lanes or they see that guy on the qualifying list and they start to look at the numbers, oh boy, I'm two, he's 15. Oh my gosh. How can, is there something, is there some easy practical application steps that a guy can do to, to maybe change the course of one of those situations? Yeah, I, I would say um, the the first thing to do is go find someone who's not in the story with you, like uh, not a crew guy. Prob- <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, or I mean, even surround yourself with crew guys who just you know, not necessarily think you're stupid, but like they're just not going to buy the story. Like surround yourself with people who aren't buying the story, um, or go talk to someone who isn't buying the story. Uh, you know, and the second thing is not like be willing to not be right about it. Like, unfortunately, humans are super righteous and like you will you will like like it's the weirdest thing to go to a racetrack. Tell someone that you're going to lose, have that person reflect back to you that that's a stupid thing to say and then convince the person that it's not. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like that's a pretty whacked out thing to to do. Then it's like, then why go? Why like why are you going to race? And look, it's not just racing. We all do it. Like I mean, I'll just be honest. I'm a you know life and performance coach and business coach, and I'll go to events and be like, yeah, no one's going to hire me this weekend. And 
like it'll be reflected back and i'll like getting a i'll become like the righteous fighter for that no one's gonna hire me this weekend and then it just it comes down to like a thing of like wait why am i going like what why am i going like you know what what the like what what is that like why do we fight to be right about things that don't even serve us um so yeah those are two things that i'd say talk to somebody who's outside of the the story and and be willing to not be right about it because it, it doesn't serve you at all to be right about it like why are you actually why are you going if you think you're gonna lose like you know and and also i mean on the flip side of it like be willing to win and be willing to have your story burst up in flames like you know that's one of the things that holds a lot of entrepreneurs back is a lot of entrepreneurs have stories of how hard they have to work or how much they have to work or how much they can make and all that stuff and so then they actually they, they create a business that makes all of that stuff true you know i was like well how come you don't have another client it has nothing to do with whether or not you can go out and get another client some people just actually reach their their barrier of like this is all the money I can. This is all the money my story allows me to to make. Um, you know, I, it may sound wacky to me, but I can. I should probably just go work in Vegas. But I can watch some races and can tell you, you know, what laps certain NASCAR drivers are going to hit the wall because they actually just can't win. Um, haven't necessarily followed so much on the drag racing side, but you know, just like what's actually too much for certain people. Um, you know, or, or how winning actually, how winning affects certain people, how losing affects certain people. And it's not always a positive and negative thing. It's not that winning always affects someone positive and losing affects someone negative. Some people, you know, not that they're losers, but some people thrive on losing. Some people uh, actually have a negative reaction to winning. Yeah, it's weird. I've seen it. I mean, it's weird. And I see it as in people that identify like really so, and I, you know, we can talk about me a little bit here is that, you know, that's one of the things that I, I have had for a long time a story of struggle that I've been married to, right? That that really defined my day to day life. Uh, I need to struggle, like that's what I, I. My dad and God bless him. I don't know that he meant harm, but he programmed me <laughs> early on. You know that life is hard and everything worth anything comes hard, and it's a struggle. And being in business for yourself is impossibly difficult. And all these things. And I really have learned when I look back at my life, the last 15 years of being a business owner, man, I can tell you there have been innumerable instances of where I made those stories true. I yeah. went out of my way to find ways to, to fail, find ways to come up just short, come, find ways to work all day and all night, find ways and reasons to be up for two or three or four days without sleep, to, to, to be horrible to myself. And it's funny because there are other ways to do it, but that was just the comfortable way to do it. That was the way that made my story true. Yeah, and it fit within the story. It did. And then you start to really, because it's a deep thing. It's a really deep thing because then you start to get married to that story and you're proud of that story and you kind of identify in that story. It's like I have a friend that struggled with like obesity, being overweight his whole life. And he actually lost a little bit of weight at one point. But he goes, man, I just... I don't know. I just, I'm, I've always been fat. Everybody knows me as, you know, a fat guy, you know, <laughs> you and identify as, he yeah. identified as a, as a fat guy and he couldn't even in today, he's still a heavy guy because yeah. that's just part of his, the character. That's his story that he's always going to be big and he's not comfortable even except, and he wants to be right so bad that he's going to do whatever he's got to do to be 
big, really. Yeah. And it's 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 amazing, man. And I see it in racing sometimes. And I see I used to my dad. I used to pick on my dad, at, you know, never to his face, tragically. Um, <laughs> but I would say that, you know, for fear of getting a, a boot in the ass. But he, he mm-hmm. my dad, it was this thing where I would always joke that it's not a good day for my dad unless it was a bad day. And it's uh-huh. funny because I adopted some of that programming where I needed I a most, fire. Most Americans, most Americans have, yeah. Right. I mean, we need a fire to put out. We need something to be outraged by, you know, because it's so, I mean, I don't know, the idea, it's kind of boring to just live. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like to not be pissed about something, to not be so put off about something that somebody wrote on Facebook or something that you saw in the news. It's a really tough place to just kind of like live in the day, like just kind of be in the moment. Very hard to do. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, a a byproduct of that, it's like we live in the greatest country and drag racing is probably one of the greatest sports and greatest ways to like really, you know, waste a bunch of time with good friends and family. And what have we turned it into? It's like, Oh, it's the place that I go to bitch at the drag manager. And it's like, what? What did we do? It's so true. It's so true. I mean, because if you think about like the, well, I don't know the the exact terminology here, but like if you think of the socio-economical demographic of drag racers, I mean, this is a whole lot of people with first world problems, <laughs> right? This is a whole lot of people that are fairly well-to-do or extremely well-to-do, and we'll right. still go out of our way to find a reason to be pissed this weekend. I go to, I mean, I saw people this past weekend at the NHRA national event in Topeka, Kansas, who were like foaming at the mouth, <laughs> mad about something. And, and I get it. They're professionals and, and some of them were, and they're, you know, they're fierce competitors or whatever, but it's like, man, if you could just have elevation, if you could elevate from this a moment, or if you could just have an ounce of perspective, maybe you could calm down that we're like, we're really fighting about some relatively inconsequential stuff, you know? Really? And, yep. uh, but it's crazy, man, because those inse- inconsequential stories or, or not inconsequential stories, those little things, they become a driving force in our life. And the yep. next thing you know, yep. you're along for the ride and you're, you're doing something that you should love, but you hate it. And you've burned up your marriage in the, and you've gone broke and your <laughs> business is struggling, you know, and, and you're just going to be mad when you get to the racetrack. Right, yeah. You become a, a warrior for hating the gateway drag manager, and it's like... <laughs> this can't be that, that much life? fun. Is that your life's purpose? Come on. No, man. It's, uh, it's, it's a very, enjoy. very tough thing. And one of the things that this is... And I don't know if this is how we will book in this conversation, but I do think it's worth talking about from like a happiness. One of the things that I have, and this is something that I'm struggling with right now, is that there is a part of me that still want like whenever my background in drag racing goes way back to just going racing with my dad and there was it was always part of the plan for me to go drag racing and I've drag raced you know street car stuff and done a little bit of fast race car stuff but I've never like pursued racing in a circuit or competing like for a championship or at a high level and it's something that it's a thing that exists in the back of my mind that during at different times i mean it seems like it's a full moon type of thing you know what i mean there's a full moon west wants to race a pro mod you know and then yeah. there's uh, there there will be months or or years sometimes that it's not even really on my radar but when i look out at the sport right now and this is something that happens kind of seasonally 
all these guys that are chasing sponsors and chasing dreams and and I see these guys that are out here struggling, you know, to to find a ride or to find a sponsor and Sometimes I want to life coach them. It's not my responsibility <laughs> to life coach them, you know, but it, it is something that I'm just curious. Like when you see that situation, and I'm sure you've seen it plenty because there have been a whole lot more people try to make it, I'm sure, in NASCAR, you know, yeah. then I mean, what do you make of that whole situation? Like the, the up and coming, even the most talented young guy, like we talk about the likelihood of becoming an NBA player or becoming an NFL player being, you know, minute I suppose there's a fairly similar staggering statistic that exists how many people at the local dirt track or how many people at the local drag strip end up professional drag racers, right? right so, right. Or, well, or NASCAR it, racers. You know, it, it, it comes down to what is it that you really, what is it that you really, really want? What is it that you really want to do? Like there's, there's a lot of, I mean, we, we always sometimes will get, like confused when there's like a great college basketball player who just decides they're not going to be a professional basketball player. And you're like, like what happened? And they're like, actually, I just don't want to like, I don't want to be a professional basketball player. Like being a professional basketball player means that like basketball becomes your career and that you like have to go to practice and you have to do the media obligations and you have to have to have to have to. And it's like, yeah, I want to go get a job and like play basketball at the Y. And it's like, well, but you're so good. And it's like, yeah, but I don't want the job of being a, like, I don't want that to be my job, you know? But what about all the money? It's like, no, it's not worth it. I don't want it to be my job. Like, you, you fantasize about driving. I fan, like, one of my fantasies is, um, I'll find myself going to NASCAR. This is weird. I hate saying this on a podcast, but I'll find myself going to NASCAR races and, like, like looking at the team, whatever team owner, like, on the top of the pit box. And just being like, I want to be that one day or like a team yeah. owner or like a team manager or something like that. And then I have to stop and realize that like there's no part of that person's job that I actually enjoy. I shouldn't say there's no part. Like I like the people part, the developing people part. Um, and, you know, so in my job, that's what I do. I work Develop with teams people. and sanctioning yeah. <laughs> bodies and develop people. But I like look at that and it's like, Jason, your life would be miserable because like, you know, like, I'm not good at logistics and stressing out and stuff like that. Like, you know, team managers' jobs is, like, to make sure everything is at the track at the right time. And, like, team owners and stuff, like, they have much bigger issues that, like, I don't want to actually deal with. But I, I like, stress out over it. And, like, oh, I want to be that guy. I want to sit up there on the pit box, which, in most cases, I could just, you know, at a NASCAR race, I could just ask most team owners, like, oh, can I just sit on your box? And they'd be like, sure. Yeah, I know. It's funny because I, I actually thought about that recently. Like, um, I get offered jobs frequently or whatever, and it's flattering, you know. But I had a guy be like, uh, hey, man, you know, I could really use some help with this race team. You know, maybe you could come in and, as, you know, and offer some consulting or do some operational stuff or whatever. And I, you know, I'm just like flattered, of course, or whatever. And I, I'm kind of thinking about like, yeah, it'd be kind of fun to, you know, the, the funnest part of that would be to tell someone that you managed a race team. The <laughs> right, rest of it would it. suck. <laughs> like, you know, the okay, so let me get this straight. The truck is broken down in New Mexico. It's on fire. Okay, right. All right. right. So the truck's burning to the ground. Okay. Um, do you have a fire extinguisher? Um, what are we going to do? You know what I mean? Like, it, now we right. got to get a new truck and trailer. Now we got to, right. th this. there's one burnt on the side of the road in New Mexico. What do we do with that? You know, who right. do we have insurance? I guess we have insurance. I mean, all these <laughs> things, 
you know, whose job was it to get insurance? Whose job oh, was, was it? Was job it my too. job to get insurance? Like, did we sign all that? You know, and then I just think about, you know, because it, it is kind of interesting. But the the thing that I that I have kind of found, and it's, I looked at the sport. I look at the sport of drag racing, and I see there are people. And I'm not saying there's a right and a wrong way because I see people that are like, you know, fighting the fight, and they're they're. I want to say they're winning. You know what I mean? People that are out mm-hmm. there and they're securing marketing partners and they're doing the stuff they got to do. But I see so many people that are out there just burning up the prime of their lives trying to chase this dream. And I respect it so much. And I'm actually really thankful for those people because those are the people you write stories about. Those are the people that you're proud of. Those are the people that you cheer on. But there are some times that I wonder, like, man, is this, like, maybe... Like, what are you really good at? Because, like, maybe you can still live this dream, but maybe there's just a different way to get there, right? You know, like, maybe you can still have this dream, but you have to maybe exercise some patience, right? Because that's the thing, and I don't know how I have it, because no one in my life is patient. No member of the Buck family is patient. (laughs) Um, That's not a a strong suit of any of ours. But Mm -hmm. it's weird, because I've had some, like, really kind of serious patience with my own personal racing, you know, fantasies, my own personal racing dreams, because I've, I've thought to myself, like, I need to build a business that will at some point support me going racing if I want to race. And whenever I have that opportunity, if I want to be sponsored, I can still chase sponsors when I have financial security. You can't, you don't only chase sponsors when you're broke. I mean, I think more people that are broke are chasing sponsors but I will tell you, I have personal firsthand experience with millionaires that are chasing sponsors, and it's interesting. They get more of them. Right, right, right. Well, you know? the, yeah, and um, I mean, the other thing with the, I guess one of the things, too, that keeps your racing dreams in line is you have a team of people, like, you know, asking you questions, like, well, what will your racing dream give you, like, all that stuff, and reminding you that 99% of that stuff you already have. Yeah. You know, it's like, you're not going to you are not going to be more famous if you become a race car driver or like, you know, no one's going to love you anymore. If you become a race car driver, like, you know, you already got all that stuff, but you know, a lot of people just need to take a deep dive and like, well, like for me, like to be a team at, like you said, like I want to be a team manager so I could sit up on the box and get interviewed by ESPN and have like a picture with like Jason Duke's team manager underneath it. And that's it. Like, I really don't want to be stressing out that like, I got 16 people looking at me because a part didn't come from, you know, the yeah, shop. No. And it's, <laughs> the car's no, you don't want that at all. Like, right? like, that's not really what I, that's not what I'm good at. Like, that's none of that. Uh, so a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are fighting the good fight to be a, you know, professional racer and all that stuff. It's like, what, what is it that you really, what is it that you really want from this thing? You know, what are some, what are some ways that, well, what is it that you really want from it? But also getting really honest with yourself about what the real, job is like the drivers who are professional drivers that do this as a like like the the business side of it as a thing like i was talking to a nascar agent the other day and he's like but like nascar drivers are the ultimate entrepreneurs like they have to be good at social media they have to be good at sales they have to be good at sponsor relations they have to be good at media they have to be good at driving and they have to keep the team together it's like there's all of this stuff that actually is their job you know, getting a trophy and getting kissed by the trophy girl is like point zero 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 one percent of their job. I agree, man. And that's 
I think that's a, an awesome way to put it. And that's what I see out here. And the, one of the things that I've encountered is time and time again, I've had people come to me and, you know, ask about how to get sponsors or whatever. And kind of the first conversation you have to have with yourself is if you really want a sponsor, because <laughs> yeah. that means you're going to have someone to answer to. And if you're like most of the racers I know, you're you're likely somewhat self-made. You're a little hard-headed. You're kind of forging your own path. You you fa- fancy yourself a trendsetter, right? You're you're the comp eliminator racer who's going to cut a perfectly fine engine in half just to show that you can go fast with half of an engine or whatever. You're going to do it hard. You're going to do it the hard way. And you know, getting a sponsor means kind of falling in line a little bit, painting your car a certain color, right? All of a sudden, your car is going to have to be purple because that's the company color, right? And all of a sudden, you're going to have to go to some company picnics. And all of a sudden, you're going to have to get active on social media. I know you hate Facebook. I know you do. Yeah, yeah. I know you do. Yeah, if you hate social media, it's probably a bad time to become a professional celebrity. Right. I mean, and I I mean, honestly, it's something that I struggle with. I don't want to post pictures of my food and I don't want (laughs) to engage. You know what I mean? Like, I want to put my phone down. I'm on it a lot. So I like to put my phone down and walk away from it. And I and sometimes that's a lie. Sometimes I can't get that thing out of my hand. But, you know, there are plenty of times that I, you know, but I kind of fail to realize. I mean, I got people all around me saying, dude, you haven't posted anything on Facebook in like, I don't know, three weeks. And I checked your Instagram. And the last time you post was last August. You know, what what, how are you doing as a personality out here? And I'm like, shit, that's your job. It becomes your job. It becomes your job. And I and I think. You know, it's like you kind of got to decide. You can't be all in. I know plenty of racers that they want to be racers or a race car driver from like strapping in to kissing the trophy girl. You know what I mean? But all that other stuff that comes with. I looked at Leah Pritchett's schedule. She handed it to me. uh, I think it was two years ago at the U.S. Nationals. And this was at the kind of, you know, the sport looked a little different a couple of years ago. There were there were she had a slew of sponsors. I mean, at the time, I think she had like. Papa John's, Mopar, Pennzoil, Crystal Ice, all these different sponsors. And right. she showed me this list. And well, like, well, and and not by surprise, right? Like, yeah, no let's, surprise. Let's, let, like, let's not be surprised. Like, oh, Leah Pritchett had, like, no, Leah Pritchett went out and busted her. Yes. Whatever to, like, you know. She did. And, I mean, and that's, I mean, and that's a person that I see out here that she's, and she's still struggling to get it done all the time. And here's someone who's mm-hmm. a million percent committed to doing the commercials, doing the photo shoots, posting on social, doing all the deals, you know, reply, you know, engaging with fans, doing appearances, signing autographs, living and dying by these painfully, you know, uh, crafted, uh, painstakingly crafted schedules. I mean, looking at her schedule for an NHRA national event weekend, it was it made me a little like queasy because, <laughs> you, you know, you know me very well and I. Uh, be here and be there at certain times. I don't like that. West doesn't roll that way, you know? And I think about it because a lot of people, I think that there's this big dream that they want to do this and they're going to become a sponsored race car driver, but they're not really prepared or even maybe aware of the, the burden that that is. And and burden, it's not a burden for everybody, you know? Cause I mean, I think Leah seems perfectly content, you know? That's what she's good at. Yeah. it, It aligns with her. Like every, like, she's perfect for this she's she's great at sales she's great at sponsor relations and she can drive the heck out of a car it works for it works for her but you know yeah if you're gonna if you're gonna want to be a professional driver and then you know be mad at all the stuff that she's doing because she's up in the ante for everyone else it's like yeah but you chose the wrong you may have chose the wrong thing 
I do have something else to say though about from a life coaching standpoint and someone like elevation or performance coach and like getting elevation on the situation. One of the things that racing may be stuck in right now is, you know, I, I think probably one of the things that some people are either afraid to say or have never taken a look at is we do have this relationship to professional driver, sponsor, all that. Um, and then it's, it took a little bit of a shift where it was like, all right, well, professional driver, rich kid, dad pays for it, all that. Um, and, and we've had a hard time making that transition because, you know, nobody wants to, not that nobody wants to play that game, but that that's a lot less sexy than like, you know, a guy who just manhandle a car and goes out and gets sponsors and all that stuff. But like, as the sport evolves, it's like, well, what's like, what's going to be the next level? Um, either how is this thing going to like, what's going to be, what's going to be the next level way that this evolves or what's going to be the next level way that we create, because we have a lot more tools than we had in the 1970s where this whole driver sponsor thing was created. Like it's just a whole new era. So what's, you know, what's going to be next. And I look at guys like, you know, the, the, well, it's funny. I want to say guys like, but I can really only point to one, like the Alex Laughlin's who were, in some way, like, yeah, like, I mean, there's sponsorship, there's probably some family money and stuff like that. But, you know, there's also just a completely different way that it seems like he's going about it and may end up being like the new model creator of whatever this new model of what professional driver is or looks like or can be. Well, and it's, I think, I mean, this is a kind of a shift in the conversation, but it, it is. I mean, there's a, there, the time has most certainly arrived to start to examine this deal and we have to tell the story better. I think that we're letting mm -hmm. some of the, we're not even trying to tell the story. I think we're letting perception be the story, serve as the story. And I do think that NASCAR is struggling with this drag racing, struggling with it. I, as a relatively new fan, well, an extremely <coughs> new fan to like formula one and IndyCar, um, the, these, the belief is that everybody's just a super rich person right and we can't relate and they're not cool and they wear fancy clothes and they have more money than we do and they have a nicer house than we do and it's just like you said it's not a super sexy story these aren't bootleggers you know that are fresh off a gravel road and onto the oval course and you know making their mark i mean it, it's not nearly as sexy but i would argue that all of these people have stories and and almost all of them are interesting and all of them have battles and all of them and it's our job to like pull the good story out. You know what I mean? Like, so what? Maybe this guy does come from money, but maybe it's a, maybe, maybe that's been a curse. You know, maybe he's struggled because he can't get anybody to take him serious because his family's got some money and he's had some opportunities presented to him that other people haven't. But I mean, it doesn't make, there's a way to tell that story, but I think that we're just kind of letting perception drive the bus and we're not yeah. really investing in the storylines. We're not creating characters. We're not building up you know, any celebrities or, or whatever the case. And a lot of times, you know, if you can set the hook a little bit and, and share some people's story of struggle or whatever the case may be, you can earn some fans that, that stick around while those people become multimillionaires with that would, that are hard to relate to. Yeah. Well, I think there, even there, we talked about like, you know, like the whole, the whole industry stuck on a story or, you know, that the competitions can't happen because an industry stuck on a story. That may be one of them where like, you know, everybody, you know, all the people at the NHRA, all the people at the teams, all the drivers, all the marketing people, everyone in the media all has that same story that like, 
you know, well, family funded racers or, you know, whatever. And the way that you do it is like you said, you, you know, you were a bootlegger, <laughs> you were a bootlegger and you outdrove the sheriff and now you're at your local track winning races and all that stuff. And so that, you know, people actually can have a next level conversation of what the sport looks like from here because we're, we're all colluding on this old story of what it either looks like or has to look like. And so there's no, there's no future conversation because I mean, in reality, like this thing is going to either evolve or just happen where we're probably not talking about, you know, 10 years ago, 10 years from now, we're probably not talking about like the way that you become a professional driver is you go out and find sponsors or that your parents pay for it. Like who knows what it's going to be 10 years from now, but you know, like, like you said, are we going to, as a, as an industry, like, you know, kill our stories and be able to have helpful conversations about it? Or as an industry, are we still going to hold on to some story that was created during the glory days, 60s, 70s, that we just don't want to give up and end up fighting the thing that actually could be the thing that moves the, the sport and the industry forward? I think it's a great way to kind of uh, wrap this thing up, man. And, and I appreciate all your time, Jason. This is, it's an interesting discussion that I think we may have to, we may not be able to let this be the only time you're on the podcast, man. I think there (laughs) might be stuff that we, we have to dive into every once in a while because it's, there's just some awareness. There's, they always say that like self-awareness is like mission critical. You have to know thyself or whatever. And I think that our whole sport, we got to learn, we kind of got to learn our tendencies a little bit better. And I think that we're, we're speaking a bleak future into reality on some levels. You know, we're, we, 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 I talk about how dangerous it is when dangerous it is when people start to believe their own bullshit. Like when you Mm -hmm. start to get yourself like, oh my God, you're believing all these things you're saying. And, you know, I think that we're at a time where I hear things like, oh, drag racing, pro level, it's just a yacht club, bunch of rich old guys or whatever. It's not true. I mean, it's literally <laughs> not true at all, but right. we want that to be the story. I mean, that is just the comfortable story that we're all used to telling. And I mean, it's not true. I mean, that completely, you know, completely glosses over the Alex Laughlins, the Stevie Jacksons, the Erica Enders, the the Sean Langdons, the J.R. Todds. I mean, there's a lot of great stories out here, and that's just like four or five names off the top of my head. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of people that are out here, you know, working really hard, going through all sorts of different things to, to, you know, live out their dream of going drag racing. And like you said, we have more tools available to us to tell these stories than ever before. I mean, it was like radio, newspaper and, you know, black and white television back then. And they seem to do it, you know, but we've, you know, we have to find new ways to tell the story. And it's, I don't know, man, if you look at drag racing, not to bag on our deal, I love this sport more than anything. But it, you really, it's hard to identify a lot of differences in the way we do stuff right now today than we did in 1985. Yeah. You well, know? and uh, uh, this is going to be a marathon. We're just going to go on for 24 hours. But, yeah, it might be. Uh, I, have, <laughs> I have another example of this. It's just in a, a real estate conference over in New York City that I, I just went to a couple weeks ago where here in New York City, there's two new really big developments um you know most people in the new york new jersey area know of all of them but um or both of them but most people around the country know about the world trade center right like 9 11 2001 planes hit uh we had that so that area has been redeveloped now 
the the big problem with the redevelopment that's happened there is it's it's the World Trade Center site. So everyone has nostalgia or drama, you know, like there needs either therapy about the site or has nostalgia of what the site is or you know went there in the eighties and like wants the site to be what it was or thinks that they should have never rebuilt. Whatever. There's a whole bunch of energy around it. So you have one developer who is building that site, trying to create this awesome new area there. There's this other development called the Hudson Yards, which has just been completely invented. It used to be a, tra- a train yard, and they're they're building on top of the, tra- the train yard. And um, and they've created this whole new community. It's probably 30 buildings or whatever. It's, it's this brand new, it's a tourist, not tourist trap, but they build a mall there. They have the Oculus, not the Oculus, that's in the World Trade Center. They have this, other like thing that everyone goes and now takes Instagram pictures in front of it and all that stuff. But it seems that they, they're having a little bit easier time selling that area because no one has like, they just, they come out of the box and they tell people what it's going to be. And people are like, Oh, okay. But the world trade center site has some issues because people are telling like the, the developers telling people what this area is going to be. And people are like fighting with, they already have stories about it. Yeah. They already already have have a thing about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the thing that motorsports has is it's it's like it's almost to the point where it, it's getting to it's getting to the point where it needs to treat itself like an, in order to be relevant and current, it needs to treat itself as a new development or at least give it give give yourself some some slack. Like other than that, you're just going to you're going to continually get beat out by all the new developments that people think are, you know, new, young, hip and cool because we're unwilling to give up the stories that we have. Uh, about the old place like i mean i'm a real estate guy real estate's not the other side of my business i go to like if, if i sat you in the middle of the world trade center complex you wouldn't know where you are if i sat you in the middle of hudson yards you wouldn't know where you are but you'd have a ton more stories if, if i would tap you on the back and was like dude you're at the world trade center like oh. all of this stuff would come up for you oh for sure i mean and i live in missouri and it would bother you know what i mean yeah, yeah. so i mean yeah. i've got stories about it it's it's true, man. And I, I just, I don't know. Sometimes I get worried because I feel like I, you know, when we kind of launched that whole make drag racing great again thing, it, it kind of caught fire or whatever, but people got real kind of salty about it in some instances <laughs> because they're like, what's wrong with drag racing? Drag racing is just fine. Damn it. You know? And it's, mm-hmm. and it, but it is, it's like, it's more of like a call to action and maybe just kind of like a recognize a realization, if you will, that like, man, we, there is some reinvention required. I mean, I just, yeah. I think that I'm experiencing with this on so many levels. Like we we do it with a we throw a party in the in Indianapolis, Indiana during the trade show season in December and we are experiencing life cycle issues where and this is apparently this is as I've delved into the nightlife world and the bar culture <laughs> and whatnot and restaurant. Dude, that's a thing. Like restaurant, right. I mean, it is the exception to the rule is a restaurant or a bar that lasts forever. Right. Right. I mean, it's most of the time there's almost like a realization that we're going to have to rebrand or we're right. going to have to come up with a new concept or a new theme in five to seven years or whatever, because yeah. it people are going to get tired of it. There's going to be a new thing down the block and we're in deep shit. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I've and I'm trying to get ahead of that because I'm going, OK, with my own business, I don't want to reach. I don't want to get to the end. I want to reinvent before maybe we need to. Right. Or at least be exploring those things. And I just think that it's uh, 
but it's very uncomfortable because I'm telling you that there'd be nothing easier than just to do things the way we've always done them forever. Yeah, but yeah. it's un- it's uncomfortable and it's hard to do if people don't trust each other and are unwilling to have conversations and just holding on to the old story. Because, I mean, the truth is, if you were going to do an event in New York City right now, it would probably be at Hudson Yards. Actually, it would be one of two places. It would be at Hudson Yards or the World Trade Center. <laughs> like two places where I wouldn't have suggested you have an event three years ago. It's funny. Because neither of them existed. Like, Hudson Yards three years ago was train track. The World Trade Center site three years ago was a, a hole in the ground construction site. And now they're the two hippest places there are. In in the Big Apple. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Yeah, it's interesting. It really is. And I, you know, we kind of, we went all over the place here, man. And I, I really do think that we're going to probably have to to do this again. Because I know that some of the things that that we've worked on that I think would be impactful for people, uh, you know, to take care of themselves. And, and you've, you've, you've inspired me to, uh, to ask those questions of racers sometimes, you know, because I do think people are, you know, they, they get home from the track on Sunday and they got to hit the ground running on Monday morning and be busting ass and whatnot. And it's like, Hey man, you just, you just went through something. You know? um, right. and it's, and I fall into that category, you know? And so there's so many other things that I'd love to talk, you know, with people about and some of our early conversations about, man, what do we actually want? What is the goal? What, what, where are we headed towards? And, you know, the, the other one that I think you've had a really big impact on our company is getting everybody a shared vision, you know, because that's something that I think we could talk about that would resonate with track owners. It would resonate with team operator, team owners, um, and little bitty race teams, like even, you know, a group of guys that are racing as friends, but maybe do it at a fairly high level or whatever, making sure that there is a shared vision, like that everybody is subscribed to the goal, because that's one of the things that, you know, we've really grown from here at Drag Illustrated is making sure that we all, I mean, actually know what the goal is. Is there a goal? You know, like what is the goal? You know, and and now we know what the goal is. And okay, let's have the conversations that are necessary to make sure that everybody's subscribed to this goal. You know, and especially the people that listen to this that 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 own businesses. And I know there are a lot of people that dive into this podcast that are, you know, business owners and entrepreneurs or trying to start a business or whatever, and they're traveling to the races. And I I think that's one of the things that you and I may have to circle back on because it's been massively impactful in my life is just identifying a vision, making sure everybody knows what the vision is, what the end goal is, and making sure everybody is subscribed to it and swim in that direction. Because otherwise, we all go our own ways and we're all serving our own visions. And it's crazy how much more you can accomplish when everybody's swimming in the same direction, right? Yeah, well, and and, I mean, one, it sounds super simple and and it's actually pretty complicated, which is why we, we, you know, work so much on it. But one of the things that I just want to say to people out there is that, you know, one of the big, and, and it's happened in our, in our, you know, work together is one of the biggest parts of creating a goal is not necessarily what the goal is, but, and especially something as complex in motorsport as motorsports and, you know, producing events and track management and stuff. One of the biggest parts of the goal is, okay, then if this is the goal, let's make a list of all the things we're not going to do or not get distracted by that's probably one of the the biggest things that I would tell, you know, anyone in racing is like, you know, the, the harder, the harder question is not what you're going to do. The harder question, what you're, if this is the goal, then here's all the things that you can't do. Um, and, and just being honest and, and having everybody bought in on, 
you know, like, look, if you're, if you're a group of fun guys that like to go racing, it's like, then this is the goal. Like we're going to go to this racetrack and have fun. Like this isn't a business. It's a fun thing. You know, if it's a professional team, then it isn't fun. It's actually your work. Like, you know, but everybody being, you know, everybody being clear on the goal, but most, most importantly, once you know what the goal is, you know, all the things that the goal is not, um, becomes really important. It's crazy, man. I mean, and that's, that's one that that's another kind of a, a it's been a recurring theme in my life and and what we do together because it's like that's you know something that I struggle with like okay what's the goal and then every time I see you know I'm like a squirrel with a nut every time I see <laughs> something or whatever a car drive by I go chase it or whatever and it's tough man but that's something that would serve all of us well and I I just appreciate the time man I appreciate you taking the time to do this I know you're busy I do want people to know Jason how how can like getting, I will say that this is not a complicated progress process and there's a lot of different levels to like finding. I mean, there's all sorts of drag racers and NASCAR racers that, you know, have been on the record talking about sports psychologists and, and working with coaches and performance coaches. And I mean, for me, it was a fairly easy decision to make when I look around at the world. I mean, I see like a lot of the, I mean, for me, it's, it's about a sounding board. It's about accountability. It's about, you know, clarity. There's a lot of different things that uh that come from it but i see like endless examples and you know of people that seem to really thrive in that kind of environment so how do people if they wanted to you know dive into a performance coaching is there like is there a ground zero for that type of thing and and how do they get with you directly yeah well i I would say ground zero is have a ground zero is have a conversation with a performance coach um a performance coach life coach business coach have a conversation with one because, I mean, unfortunately, in our society where we have a hard time trusting people, people try and do everything but that, you know, so they'll go read books and they'll go to seminars and they'll go, you know, like listen to other podcasts by life coaches and stuff like that, but not actually have a conversation um, with a person, like have a conversation with a person. Um, if you want to get in contact with me, it's it's easy. Just, you know, search life coach Jason Dukes on any of the search engines or my uh my website is uh, just cap. It's Captain's Chair Coaching, so it's captains-chair.com. Um, you can give me a call. All the information's on there, and you know, let's just have a, a conversation. Like I work with visionary entrepreneurs who are working on, uh, you know, working on big things for themselves and for an industry. But even if you're not, like, give me a call, and I can suggest either some people to work with or. And a lot in uh, those conversations, like it's not like people don't need to be afraid of it because it's like you're going to talk to them. You're not going to ask oh, for yeah. their credit card number. You know what I mean? You're (laughs) going to talk to them. And, you know, I look back in all the conversations that we have had, the number, the probably the most impactful one we had, well, I mean, pretty damn close was the first one. You know, I I mean, and I'm not trying to, you know, screw you out of some business here, but I will say that I I don't I don't mind it. It, Well, again, I don't like we talked about with Leah Pritchett of of her stuff like you saw her schedule and you thought it was terrible. Like she saw her schedule and that's what she loves doing. Like. You know, if I get a thousand people call me because of this podcast, like I'll, I'll actually be, I'll be cool with it. Not because it's like, oh my God, now I'm going to become a millionaire. Like I'll be cool with it because that's what I do. Right. I mean, I get it. You know, and it's just, that's I think that I think back to that first conversation that we had and some of the issues that I was dealing with or whatever, just in business and trying to get things sorted out. And there was all sorts of different stuff coming at me and I'm going, oh my God, I got to try to find a way to make sense of this. And a lot of times, you know, and I'm, I had some natural instincts that I didn't want to 
you know, I can't come to, I can't go to all my people that work for me with this stuff. You know, that's right. not going to help them. You don't want to bog down. I mean, and not to be, I encourage people to be communicative with your wife and obviously and things like that, but you also can't just come home and puke out all the bad, you know, on your, on yeah. your family every night. So it's helpful to have mentors. I mean, I encourage people, I have three mentors in my life that are you have three great mentors. Yeah, I have three like world-class mentors that I talk to all the time amongst many. And I have several, you know, but three that I talk to all the time and I encourage people like don't be afraid to ask questions. They always say that like the best way to learn is through trial and error, but people seem to forget that it doesn't have to be your trial and error. It can be yeah. that of someone else's. You know, you can learn from someone else and to have those conversations, man, because even if you and I wanted to have hooked up and, and stayed working together for a long time after that first conversation in June of 2017, I, I was better. I was better oh, yeah. for that time we spent on the phone. And, and had we not, you know, stayed working together after that, I was better for that no matter what. And I encourage people, you know, reach out to Jason. Great guy. Known him for a long, long time. And uh, thank God he didn't get me hired at Gateway. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate it, buddy. Same here. Love, love everything you're doing.